Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. Enjoying the sights and sounds of my nearest green space and woodland area of Hampstead Heath is always one of my favourite things to do. And one animal I enjoy hearing the most is the woodpecker. The thing is, they are so blooming hard to spot. But now, thanks to my Leica UltraVid HD Plus binoculars, I get to see these beautiful birds hammering away for food with very little work. These easy-to-use binoculars are fitted with high-end technology, making spotting wildlife a breeze. They are perfect for a binocular beginner like myself. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Into the Wild. It's lovely to be sat here speaking into your ear holes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hope you had a good week. It's been a bit of a mad one, hasn't it? It's been a bit of a... The clocks went forward in the UK and then the seasons went back. We were just enjoying spring and then suddenly we've had this horrendous temperature drop and now it's back in winter. I swear this year so far in England it's gone January, February... March, June for three days, January, and now we're back in December. So I don't know what's going on. I hope all the wildlife and the animals is going to be all right. I also hope I'm going to be all right because I don't deal with the cold very well. Um, I've been so busy. I know you lot don't care about that, but I have genuinely been so busy and I feel so tired and I've not been able to go and see a lot of like naturey stuff or take my camera out and I'm craving it. But yeah, I'm just, I've not seen much naturey stuff. That's a lie. Actually, that's not true. Sorry, that was a bit aggressive. I don't mean, that's not entirely true. In the garden, I had my first caterpillar. That was exciting. That was quite fun. I got some uh, nice macro shots of that. That was quite nice. It was a, oh, I can't remember. It was a moth caterpillar. I can't remember which one. Give me a minute and I will see. It was an angel shade moth caterpillar. No idea what the moth looks like, but I'm excited to find out. Anyway, let's move on to today's show which is obviously why you're all here. Um, this week, I spoke to Roxy Furman, who is a wildlife presenter and filmmaker. It was a lovely chat. I love talking to wildlife filmmakers because, in my opinion, they have the greatest job in the world. I know it's a challenging job, it's hard work, but if you can just, you know, create amazing films and documentaries about wildlife and the natural world, what a wonderful job to have, right? So, myself and Roxy spoke about two main things, really. I found out um, when I was planning this episode with Roxy that she had a love for African painted dogs. Um, so I wanted to know a bit about that. We've spoken about them on the show um, once before, back on one of our early episodes, but I wanted to ask Roxy a bit more about why she liked them, what specifically is it, is it about that um, kind of animal that drew her in. We then went on to, and interestingly, spoke about veganism. Now, I, I don't think I've said it much on the show before, but I am a, uh, I am a vegan. Um, I've not said it loads. Considering I'm a vegan, I've not said it as much as people would joke I would. Um, but we spoke about that. And what we what we specifically spoke about is living sustainably um, and transitioning into a vegan diet and living more sustainably. Is it sometimes difficult to talk about that topic? Because with veganism becomes a great stigma. If, if you say you're vegan, people go, oh, you're talking about veganism. Um, so we, we spoke about trying to talk about this in with wildlife filmmaking and how you have to, what you have to be careful about, what you have to be respectful of. So it was a really kind of interesting chat about the old vegans. I say this where, whilst wearing a t-shirt that says vegan babe. Um, so 
Um, but I really enjoyed this chat and I'm looking forward to you listening to this show as well. And just a reminder, if you are a fan of Into the Wild, or even if you just like this episode, please head over to Kofi.com and buy me a coffee. I would really, really appreciate that. I am gasping. But enough from me. Here's this week's show. Enjoy and I'll speak to you at the end. Roxy, welcome to Into the Wild. Thank you so much for doing jo- Oh, God, I can't even talk. This is how we're starting the show, Roxy. This is how we're doing take it. Take one. I'm not going to edit that out. <laughs> take one. And then, like, skip forward to take 37. Hello. Thanks for joining me, mate. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Just absolutely, your face is like regret of doing this show. But I will make sure that's not the case. Um, it's a pleasure to chat to you. Have you had a lovely day? Um, I've had a full-on day, but I've had a... There's a new series that just started on Netflix actually today about Dog Trainer. So I spent the last Ooh. hour watching an episode of that, which is very interesting. What's it called? Uh, dog... Dog something or other. <laughs> the first start. episode was about this like three-legged pit bull rescue who had oh. like lost her leg in a shooting accident and was then a highly reactive dog and he transformed her and it was... A good story. They're always just such magical stories, especially, I don't, like, it doesn't matter what happens, if it's a three-legged dog, you're like, I hope this pans out well. I know. Like, <laughs> there's something like three legs or legs on wheels or something like that where you're like, it's got to be a good story. Yeah. Please make it a good story. <laughs> um, well, cool, I'm going to watch that. That's right up my street as well. Let's get our listeners clued up. Roxy, would you like to start by telling us who you are and what is it you do? Sure. So I'm Roxy. I am a wildlife filmmaker. My background is in zoology. I have a bachelor's degree. My undergrad research focused on social learning and pack structure in African painted wolves, which I'm sure we will touch on a little bit later. <laughs> um, and then after that, I kind of went more down the storytelling route, first with photography mm. and now with wildlife filmmaking. And I'm currently working with civil back on the Earthshot series. Amazing. What's that like to work with Silverback Productions on that? It's amazing. <laughs> I feel like I'm learning yeah. so much every day and just like consuming information yeah. from everyone. We've just got a very tight production schedule because we've had a year to make it. And with COVID, that isn't the easiest thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are a few restrictions I hear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so lots of remote crews, which is, you know, a great mm. thing to be using new people from all across the world. But, you know, it's hard to communicate what's in your brain and try and put that in mm. someone else's brain. So it does have yeah, its challenges. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a weird year. I hope we don't get too used to it as well. What I really want to get out of that side and be like, right, now we can start picking up the production. Now I can see you face to face in person, talk to you about it, and storyboards in person and stuff. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that easing out. Roll on June. Um, <laughs> so... Into the Wild's first question, everyone gets asked this one, is how and when did your love for wildlife and nature begin? Literally for as long as I can remember. One of my first words was woo-woo, which is how I used to say woof-woof for dog. (laughs) 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 Oh my God, I wish they said (laughs) woo-woo. How much happier would the parks be? I know. Um, my mum always says to me about this time where I was at nursery and they kind of went round all the kids asking them what their favourite animal was and everyone would be like, dog, cat, rabbit. And it got to me and I was like, hippopotamus. Just like trying to have the most extravagant animal word I could think of. (laughs) Has that held held the test of time? Is it still hippopotamus? No, it's not actually. 
I don't know why oh. I even said that. I was probably just trying to show off that I knew a long word. <laughs> don't answer that yet. Let's get onto that favourite animal in a minute. Okay, cool. So how did it develop from there then? Um, well, I was really lucky to be raised vegetarian by my mum. So it was kind of instilled in us from a young age that we love and we respect animals. And that's why we chose mm. as a family not to eat them. So that was kind of, you know, nurtured in my family home, which I feel really lucky because not everyone has that yeah. experience with animals from such a young age, especially in the world that we live in. We would go on family holidays as well. And instead of, you know, sunbathing or chilling at the beach, we'd always go and see what animals we could find nearby. Sorry if you can hear my dog's collar. She's scratching in the background. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Um, <laughs> But one of the first ones that I actually remember myself was a trip we did to Seychelles to a place called Bird oh, wow. Island, which is renowned for its conservation efforts. Mm. And I think I was about six or seven at the time. And we joined a group to go and release sea turtle hatchlings from their nest straight into the ocean. So that like cuts out that journey where they predated on by birds or crabs. Um, and Robbie, mm. this man who was working there as a the conservationist, asked everyone to wait while he went to collect them. And instead of waiting, little six-year-old me took off my shoes and ran after him. And he picked me up, <laughs> put me on his shoulders, and he let me go with him. And ever since then, oh I was like, God. I want to be like Robbie. Yeah. Still, like to that day, he was just had such a massive impact on my life. And now, actually, mm. I reached back out to Bird Island to say, here's a photo of me and Robbie. Is he still there? Like, can you please tell him what an impact he had on my life? And he is still there. And it was just... You know, so oh, amazing. amazing to have that one person that really shaped my future from then on and to be able to tell him as well was just such a special mm. thing. That's lovely to hear that, it, you know, whenever we, we talk about like where it instilled from, like where there's love for nature, you know, it's so easy for people to say like the, the media people such as, you know, whether it was Steve Irwin, whether it was Jane Goodall, whether it was David Attenborough or something, but to have a specific person that you met that, but is not a mainstream person, you know, he's, he's there doing active conservation work. That's so lovely to hear that you had that kind of moment. Mm. And, and also that's a moment that everyone would love at any age. <laughs> I know, even now. <laughs> yeah, even now. That? That's what I want to be doing. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That's so lovely. Um, so what, did you have a favourite, were turtles something you were really interested in in your family? Or I don't think I had a particular interest in turtles. I mean, now I mm. they are kind of a species that I feel drawn to. It was just, let's go and see this wildlife and try and get the kids involved with something. Because I feel like having those experiences firsthand really help you to appreciate nature in such a different way. And it's often so mm. hard especially for children to get those hands-on experiences unless you're going to a zoo which is you know a whole different topic and <laughs> you know great in some ways because they allow kids to see animals that they mm. otherwise might never ever be able to see but I think there's something just so incredible and precious about being there in that moment and watching these people who have dedicated their lives to helping animals and I think as a kid when you are so receptive to all of these things it's just mm. like so strong and so powerful to be able to have those encounters. The other thing you said about being raised in a vegetarian household which I find really that's really lovely to hear and and I don't want to be <laughs> I don't want to talk too vegan on the show <laughs> but that is it genuinely is because like you said it is not something that is even now but well probably more so now but it's still not the norm now and I think Roxy, you're living proof that you see it can be done. <laughs> and I mean, it definitely wasn't easy. My mum would like come home with leaflets from the doctor, 
telling her you shouldn't be feeding your kids a vegetarian diet. They're going to have these deficiencies and be ill and not grow up properly. Mm. And so for her to really like stand her ground in a world where it was so uncommon, like hats off to her. And I definitely think that shaped my Mm. thoughts and feelings growing up. It was also interesting because my dad wasn't vegetarian. Oh, okay. So I think that kind of balance helped me gain an understanding of other people's perspective as well, which I try to like take into consideration nowadays That's with really my interesting. work and activism and just be mindful to everyone's mindsets and mm. knowing that there are different things that make people tick and you just have to find your calling really, don't you? Yeah, that's so true. I'm gonna, I'm, <laughs> we're going to be talking about that in a minute. I can't wait to come on to that topic because that's also really interesting. You said, I'm glad you said that about your dad because that's a very unique, yeah. think, even more unique than a veggie household, actually. I think having the split down the middle is really interesting. So our first thing I want to talk to you about is you spent a lot of time or some time um, learning about African painted dogs or wild dogs. And what was it about these animals that, I mean, I know what it is. <laughs> I asked this question with absolute certainty of what it's going to be. But what was it about the African painted dogs that captured your attention? For me, a lot of it is through my work and what I do, I really want to help other people find an emotional connection to animals. Because I truly believe that if you Mm. love something and understand it, then you won't want to hurt it. And I think it's a lot easier for people to find that connection with social species that they can see parallels with their own relationships in. And I think that's why the African hunting dogs or painted wolves or whatever you, they're being called now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whatever name they are this year. It's <laughs> so special because they have these really intricate pack dynamics. Yeah. And, you know, they look after their sick, they look after their elderly. And it's really easy for people to draw parallels between their behaviour and our own, mm. which I really think helps as a conservation tool in getting people on board with science and wildlife and falling in love with nature and you focus specifically and you said there like with your answer you focus like quite specifically on their pack structure and their dynamic can you tell us a bit about how that actually works with painted wolves so they're actually quite unique in terms of it's actually the females that will disperse from the natal pack the pack to which they're born and normally you'd see the males leaving Mm. the pack And that's a pattern which is seen in many primates as well. And it helps to reduce inbreeding. And kind of Mm. within this pack, they have this weird hierarchy with alphas and the subordinates. And it's only the alphas that will breed. And all of the subordinates actually show what's known as alloparental care. And they basically help babysit and look after this young that's not their own. Which, if you're talking about the theory of evolution and survival of the fittest, like... That concept is so weird to invest all of your energy and resources to take care of something that biologically isn't your own. Yeah, yeah. So it's very unique. And because it's so unique and they're such an understudied animal, like if you think about African wildlife, most people can tell you about lions and cheetahs and hyenas, Mm. but very few people even would know what an African painted dog is. And... Mm. Because of that, the lack of study into them, the intricate pack dynamics, it means that conservation efforts are being really challenged. If we understood their pack dynamics better, we might have a better chance of being able to help save them. And when we move a pack from one location to another for a conservation reason, you know, be able to ensure that that pack had the right surroundings to be able to ensure that it could continue to live and thrive. And if we can't understand how the pack works and it splits apart, you know, for a social animal, that's not going to work. 
So it's kind of like the key thing to understand to then be able to help save them. There's always such a weird conversation with pack, isn't there? I think that there's such a... I mean, we're going to talk about <laughs> stigmas a lot on this show, I think. But there's a stigma with the word pack where we think it's dominant. But am, am I right in saying that a lot of, you know, wild canines, but focusing on painted dogs, it works as kind of a family group yeah, rather than a dominated pack? Yeah, they are a family unit and they're also very, very rarely aggressive. They're like overtly submissive. Mm. Everything is trying to avoid confrontation, avoid aggression. They do these, well, they do loads of different calls, but little like yelping and yipping calls and get down Mm. on their forearms with their tails like wagging just to be like, I'm submissive, don't tell me off, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And that helps to reduce aggression and again is something that makes them so unique as a pack, so to call it, animal. I always think maybe we should just change the I word. <laughs> I feel like it needs to be changed. It's been it's one of those terms, but especially when we look at domestic dogs, but I'm not going to come on to that when they're like, oh, look, it's a nice pack. It's like, mm-hmm. mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> And for African painted dogs as well, who aren't actually a dog and they're not a wolf, <laughs> yet we still use all of this same vocabulary <laughs> to describe them. It's just a bit absurd. <laughs> We're a lazy species, Roxy. We don't like the work. That's what it is. They also, I, I remember reading up on painted dogs it's a couple of years ago and remember hearing about their calls because I remember reading when they are about to go on a hunt. If one of them is going to lead a hunt, they'll kind of, is, is it a cough or a sneeze? I can't remember that. It might be one of the two. And they will only decide as a pack to go if, I think, it's, is it 10? If 10 respond with a cough, then they'll go. Anything under 10, then a hunt won't usually go ahead is that right i'm not sure about the 10 but maybe i guess it depends on pack size they can massively vary in pack size um but yeah they do only hunt as a pack although saying that there are a couple of examples now where that's changing but (laughs) (laughs) before that all of the science was that they only hunt as a pack and it's actually one of the not the alphas but one of the kind of subordinates that they all follow from behind like nipping at the animal's bum, chasing it forwards, and one of the others will like travel round to attack from the other angle. And once it's there, does another form of vocalization to let the rest of the pack know, like, I'm in mm. place. So it's like constantly oh, working together with all of these vocalizations to be nice. so successful, like 80% of their hunts a successful kill, which is incredible. That is, for their size as well, mm-hmm. that's incredible because they're not, they're, they're like, I, I, I've never seen one in the wild. I've only seen them <laughs> depressingly at London Zoo. But, you know, they're like Labrador size. So that is really impressive, yeah. really, for an 80% kill rate. Um, we've got to talk about their ears. <laughs> I can't move on until we've spoken about their ears. That is <laughs> surely got to be one of the most incredible ear on an animal in Africa. It is. But it's also what makes people think that they're hyenas. <laughs> <laughs> it's like their misrepresented feature where people just see the ears and think well, what must that be and you know hyenas the easy guess <laughs> their greatest pro is also their downfall it's, it's a nightmare for the it's like a mickey mouse ear that's the best way of ideas. it is them. isn't it it is like a mickey <laughs> yeah yeah you're not seeing disneyland in africa that is just painted dogs um, yeah. how like have you ever um worked with them have you ever been to africa to mm-hmm. see them yeah. And what was that like to be in the field with but, um, and working kind of with them? With them as if you're in an <laughs> office with them. But you know what I mean, Roxy? <laughs> Amazing and stinky. They smell really bad. They have this really? like musky smell that comes off of them. So you can often smell them first. And scent's really important <laughs> in their pack as well. So very stinky, <laughs> but also just incredible and 
you know, watching them interact is just fascinating. I think, yeah. you know, watching any species and learning about what you may assume a behavior to be to versus what it actually is, is just like such a special part of being in the field. Yeah, so I would, I would absolutely love to go and see them. They're, they're up there in one of my top 10 animals. I think they're absolutely beautiful. And it you is, have to go. I, I do. I, I'm planning on it, mate. I'm planning on it. I really want to go and see them. I think they're incredible animals. And the more I learn about their social structure, I was like, they, they're just getting more and more incredible. Let's move on to talk about your wildlife filmmaking. Now, we, we've spoken to a couple of wildlife filmmakers. I'm always interested to see how it varies between person because it always does is there an an animal or a nature topic you would love to work on with wildlife filmmaking i can't really think of a specific animal but more so that i really want to tell conservation stories Mm. you know human wildlife stories getting that human element in there is i think really important yeah and increasingly so you know i don't think we're going to have much success with conservation if we don't start telling the human stories more and i also think it helps people to connect especially to animals people had never heard or seen of before having that human element people can easily relate to other people so even on that level I think that's a really strong thing to focus on moving forward and also kind of based on my own interests I'd love to build more like environmental and vegan stories into those films as well so what got you into the filmmaking side from your zoology days and your studies how did you pick up the camera I guess well since I was three I started dancing and kind of like growing up it was always animals and dancing go to school and then go to theater school after school so it was always this like two loves growing up and when I went to university that was kind of the point where I really had to decide between the two and Mm. although I did dance society at uni it wasn't quite the same level anymore (laughs) but because I was kind of you know in that entertainment theatre world and a lot of my friends were in that world as well I kind of really saw this disparity between what I was learning about in the science community versus what my friends and you know entertainment was more focused on Mm. and I felt like I could have more of an impact if I was communicating science in a way which was entertaining to a wider audience because as amazing as it may be to read this new scientific paper that's been published showing this incredible new behavior it's so inaccessible to non-scientists like even (laughs) with a science degree sometimes I'll read a paper and be like okay what? Wait, what? <laughs> and then like go back and read it another five times. It's like I know all those words, but I don't know what that means. Yeah. So I was just really wanting to try and bridge that gap and pick up mm. both of my passions again. So I started with photography, just sharing what I was seeing out in the field. At the time, I was working on a boat up in Scotland. And I was like, I'm seeing such cool animals. I want to share this with people. So I got my first camera just after I graduated and it soon became like a third arm and I was just obsessed with photography and it was just like this bliss for me being out of my camera and in nature with wildlife. I just felt like time stood still and I didn't need the toilet and I didn't need to eat and I was just like loving life and I was like I think this is what I need to do. Yeah it was just such an obvious pick. Yeah. If you're choosing it overeating yeah I mean, that's exactly. quite <laughs> one of life's essentials there. <laughs> so how do you because on your Instagram you you've got vegan wildlife filmmaking so or makers sorry so how do you fuse veganism in with wildlife filmmaking how do those two worlds combine and come together well for me veganism is based on compassion 
I think everyone has mm. their own reasons for coming to veganism, whether that be for health reasons or environmental reasons. For me, it's always been based on my love of animals. And I think that really extends to all animals and building a connection with non-human animals. And as most people living in the Western world have become so disconnected from animals, you know, we live in mm. these cities with buildings where we can barely even see the sky, let alone birds yeah. or frogs or whatever else it may be <laughs> i think the more you can build connection to animals people will naturally start you know leading to more towards that route and finding out more about animals and how to help save them and that kind of naturally leads on to veganism so i kind of like to think of it as gentle activism you know when i made my transition from vegetarian to vegan which i know isn't a big transition i still be. felt like <laughs> I had to come to that decision for myself. Like for the yeah. first two years or something, I was like, I'm not vegan, I'm plant-based. And, if, you know, <laughs> we'd go out and my mum would say, oh, Roxy's vegan now. I'd be like, no, I'm not, don't call me that. <laughs> you know, I was so defensive. So I know personally what it's like. You have to be in that headspace yourself. Like no one mm. else can make that decision for you. And I think I always bear that in mind and try to be mindful of that. And knowing that, you know, what works for someone doesn't work for someone else and you can't ever force an opinion on someone. All you can do is provide them with beautiful images or videos that just make them think, oh my God, I love that cow so much. I never want to eat a cow again. And to me, that's kind of the best way of bringing veganism into what I do as a day-to-day. -day. And before we move on to veganism as a topic, it's one more question for your wildlife filmmaking. You've worked on a number of projects. What would you, if you could pick like the diamond project, if you're like, if I could do that, have all my funds there and all my resources, what project would you love to create through your eyes and your storytelling? I mean, I want to create a wild dog film. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Why would you that not? That would be ideal. <laughs> and talking about their conservation and people out there working to help save them. I just think it'd be incredible. But I also want to create a film about primates and the pet trade. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah, just like redefining our opinion on pets versus wild and the blurred lines that are starting to become more and more common. I, that's an interesting topic because I think it's something in the UK we don't actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we experience that day to day because, I mean, there's exotic pet trade, of course there is, but I've, from the point of a wild animal, you know, if you take America, for example, where there's, it's not uncommon to see that kind of, I don't think it's as common in the UK, so we forget it's a thing. Yeah, and I think it's because it's, well, the different legalities, but it definitely still happens. And there is like a black market online where they mm. trade all sorts of animals all across the world. When you start delving into it, it's really shocking to know, like, again, I was the same. I thought, oh, no one would have a pet monkey here. But they do. Yeah. And when you start realising, oh, this is a problem on my doorstep, I think that really like helps yeah. shift people's perspectives about the scale and the severity of the problem. It's always bringing it closer to home, Roxy. It's always mm -hmm. doing that. Bring it, bring it, bring the problem to the doorstep, and people go, "Oh God, I better do something about it." Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so now we're going to talk about veganism, and it is at this point I'm going to say to my listeners, "Don't stop listening." Like this is <laughs> when I say we're going to talk about veganism. This isn't like a new advert for being a vegan. This is just talking about the concept of keep listening. Don't if you're eating a bacon sandwich, crack on. Like, don't worry about it. So. You're an advocate, as you've clearly said to me, for protecting animals, loving animals, and living sustainably as well. 
and you living in a veggie household. How did you find transitioning into a vegan and living and living sustainably later on as well? I personally did it really slowly. First, I started having plant milks. Then I stopped having mm. corn, which was something I had all the time, which has egg white in. Just like really making really small swaps and quite gradual change, which for me was like manageable and the way I found easy to deal with it. Whilst I was finding my feet, because at the time I started about five years ago and vegan products were still really inaccessible. Like yeah. you couldn't just go into any supermarket or corner shop and find something vegan. So it was an easy way for me to start being like, okay, I know I can have this. Or if I pack this in my lunchbox and I know I can find this. So that like small steps really worked for me. But I know for some people who have more of a like shock encounter and have an experience that's more um, front on and make that decision overnight, they'll drop everything in a day. So I think it's how it works for you as an individual and there's no right or wrong way of doing it. If you have that feeling that you want to make a change, then I think just do it in a way which works for you. Obviously, there is some stigma with the vegan community, but the vast majority are so yeah. welcoming and loving. And it is something that is based on compassion so that theoretically extend to compassion to other humans as well. They want people to come to be vegan and the more support they can give, the more ideas and tips they can have and just share and make that journey easier. I think finding that right group of people to support you really helps with that transition. Yeah, I completely I completely agree with that. I think connect like having people you can just share ideas with and bounce recipes off or if it's nutritional information or even just like where can I buy that? Any yeah. of that just having that like welcome group. Interestingly, I did it in a completely opposite way that you did. <laughs> like it, it could not be more opposite. <laughs> I so you just have a bang overnight. Literally it was I made I had two friends right this was five years ago, roughly about five, six years ago as well. I had two friends around on the Friday night and I made pulled pork by that day. Made pulled pork. And by the Sunday, I was vegan. Oh my that's gosh. Mad, isn't it? That's, that's mad. <laughs> Did you watch um, something or? Yeah, but not like a documentary or anything. It was, I think someone had shared a video on Facebook and I just, it was of, it was pig transportation. And I just saw, oh, this is going to sound so Ryan and vegan. And I, sorry listeners but i just saw like the look on the the animal's face and i was like oh, i'm not comfortable with that anymore mm. but i just can't like and it was i think it was transport within the uk as well so it wasn't even like oh maybe it's happening over there it was like oh god um and then i thought well i can't just give up on pigs i can't just do that because that's just not how i work as a person so i just and when i do something it's like Bam. It's got to be everything. And it can't. So I was living with a good friend of mine at the time. And I was like, right, all the cheese in my fridge is yours. All the butter I'm going to shops. I'm buying bam, bam, bam. And that's what I did. Literally, by the Monday, wow. I was like reading up on stuff to make sure I was all right. That's <laughs> amazing. But you're right. People do it in completely different different ways. It's important to have that welcoming side of it, I think. For you, from an activist point of view, do you, do you find it, do you find talking about veganism is something, is, is something that's sometimes difficult to do? Is in from a welcoming point of view? I think it really depends the approach and whether it's something that you're bringing up to incite response in someone or if it like mm. comes up naturally in a discussion where you're talking about conservation or, you know, something else and it just comes up more naturally. And I think it's very different imparting information onto people versus people having that healthy discussion and asking questions and just be able to give really open, honest responses yeah. without adding emotion to the response. Mm. 
And I think that helps people feel less either way on the defense. Like, I feel like you're threatening me as a vegan. Well, I feel like you're threatening (laughs) me as a meat eater. And I don't think that's like a way of either parties feeling happy with that conversation in any discussion, like whether that would be about what shop you go to, like if you're addressing something with, I think you're doing it wrong. Well, I think you're doing it wrong. You're never going to get anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I think it does really depend on the context and the situation about how it's discussed. And this is an interesting question, but why do you think there is such a stigma about veganism or a plant-based diet that maybe vegetarianism used to get but doesn't get as much now? Why do you think veganism is the world that gets this stigma? It's something that requires a lot of change in most people, like something that Mm. you've done your whole life to completely change. It's like a big thing for anyone, even if you think about I don't know what shampoo and conditioner you use and you have your favorite and you don't want to give up your favorite. And if someone starts telling you it was bad, you'd be a bit like, whoa, anything that requires (laughs) habitual change is really hard for any species, Mm. like let alone us as humans. And I think veganism does require more change, especially as it's something which often involves lifestyle as well. Like vegetarian tends to be more diet related, whereas vegan is often associated more with lifestyle changes like what you wear and what products you use. And it then just has this whole big expansive thing that can seem quite intimidating and just like so large scale that you're like, I don't know where to start. And I think that is changing and the every single veganuary, you see like more and more <laughs> KFC and everyone bringing out vegan options Mm. and it just makes it easy and accessible and cheap which I think really changes people's perspective but I also think on that like it's important to remember some of the reasons why it's not cheap depending on what you're eating whether you're if you're eating grains and legumes fine but you know if you're eating substitutes where dairy is normally subsidized say by the government that has to be taken into consideration when comparing prices and stuff it has got so much better from two people that went vegan probably, well, you said five years ago? Yeah. You went into Tesco's five years ago. There is not the range Mm-mm. there is now. <laughs> like, and even from a cost point of view, it's not breaking the bank anymore. Yeah. Even from like vegan sausages, it's like, just like, you can just grab them for sometimes cheaper than Yeah, I mean, when I was, <laughs> I started when I was living at uni in a student house where I was the only vegan and my shopping bill was always cheaper than everyone else's. Yeah. <laughs> It is an, it's, a, it's a misconception that it's always so much more expensive. I'm going to ask you this question, and it may be a bit of a divisive question. I don't mean it to be. I mean it to be a bit of bants for people <laughs> listening. But what's the most annoying thing? And I'm going to ask this from both perspectives. <laughs> but what's the most annoying thing vegans do? Tell everyone they're vegan. <laughs> <laughs> is it so is it like because i always find people tell people i'm vegan when i'm there and then i've got to be like yeah yeah it's yeah it's true oh see yeah he is it's like i didn't bring it up (laughs) yeah but then like also i find myself saying it i don't know it just like slips out sometimes like say we're at a table and you know there's a bottle of wine and i'm like oh can i just check is this vegan and then i'm like oh here we go (laughs) that's so funny i had it with my parents that they would say Whenever I said anything, they'd be like, oh, he's always bringing it up. Any, anything. <laughs> like my, my dad could offer me meat 
And I'd be like, no, Dad, I can't eat that. I'm vegan. I'd be like, oh, he's bringing it up again. It's like, no, you're offering me something I can't have. I'm reminding you. <laughs> that's not me bringing it up. Okay, that's interesting. So let's flip it in the in the way we do to keep balance on the show. <laughs> What's the most annoying thing meat eaters do? Where do you get your protein from? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm honest, I don't know. I, I'm not a nutritionist, Plants. I genuinely don't know. Same way but gorillas do, my, my hippos food. do, <laughs> oxes, <laughs> all these big vegan Just animals. Just simple. <laughs> yeah. Where do you get your protein? My food. <laughs> it tends to be my food, normally. Like, very rarely is it my clothing. <laughs> Okay, th those were two nice quick answers. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I thought you were going to be taken aback. Let's talk about living sustainable, because I think this is something that filters into veganism, but not as much as it should. Um, how did you find that going to live in more eco and kind of, I don't know, using products and changing them in the house to be a bit more better for the environment? Hard. And that's something I still think <laughs> is hard. Because greenwashing mm. is a real problem and there's a lack of transparency in like advertising and the media, which makes it very hard to make genuinely conscious decisions. Yeah. And sometimes you'll think, oh, I'm doing something great and be really proud of yourself and then find <laughs> out that actually it wasn't so great. And you're like, damn it, I was really trying. But I think, again, it's yeah. just like doing what we can in the world we live in. And mm. we do live in a society where they favor the wealthy and they shove ads in your face about like bye 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 and it's very mm. hard to step away from that and like filter through okay let me just try and think I'm being shown this stuff all of the time but like what's my brain actually processing from this and like trying to find <laughs> yeah. out what's real and not real it's really hard and hopefully as systems change and society change those choices will then be made a lot easier for everyone. And I think mm. people have to remember, yes, I think that if you are lucky to be living in the Western world and you have a roof over your head and the money to make that choice, definitely make that choice. But don't expect that that's something that's accessible to everyone in the world that we live in. I think that's so important. I think that's one of my things where, you know, if I, if I was to briefly answer one of the questions I asked you about the most annoying part, or the annoying things that a vegan or a ve the part of the vegan community that brings up is the failure to realise that kind of stuff or remember that kind of stuff mm. is to say, like, your life experience is not everyone's life experience. Um, whether that's in the same country as you or another country, it's people live very different lives and are under very different pressures. And um, it doesn't mean your pressures are not important, but... It <laughs> So I think that's something that's so important for everyone to just remember, especially from when it comes to living sustainably. Like, and going plastic-free, because there are some areas where plastic-free is cheaper. Mm -hmm. Around me, around this way, where I live is loose fruit and veg is cheaper than going into Tesco's and buying fruit and veg. But that's not the case everywhere. Mm -mm. And also, again, like we don't actually really see the impact of plastic pollution because we just ship our waste elsewhere and put that problem on someone else to deal with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, you know, it's not even brushing it under the carpet, is it? It's yeah. brushing it under someone else's carpet. <laughs> Just crazy, the world that we live in. And I think that makes it hard for people to connect to the problem because if you don't see it, it makes it really hard to understand. So I think, yeah, just trying to have as much perspective as we can and realising that the world we live in is extremely privileged and, you know, we are the problem and we're making it a problem for other people, not just ourselves as well. I think it's also important to not, like not take it personally 
Yeah. Like, when we talk about this kind of stuff, like you said, like, when we say we are the problem, we are not saying, like, Darren, you're the problem. (laughs) If you weren't here, Darren, like, the planet would be fine. (laughs) But I think it's more, if you get it wrong, it's okay. What's the important thing is going forward with it and Mm -hmm. going, like, how can I not try my best to not make that error again? Yeah. And just doing what you can and talking to people about it. Even if you make a mistake, I think it's amazing when people make a mistake and just say, sorry, I didn't know. Now I do know. Mm. I'm going to rectify it. And that's how we learn and do better. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, if you make a mistake, fine. If you make the same mistake again, well, sort yourself out. But um, it's... <laughs> I joke, I jest. Please no emails. So, is this when you like transitioned into vegan and living more sustainably? Is that how your business Zephyr Eco Market? Is that how that kind of came? Do you want to tell us a bit about what that was? How that worked? Yes. Yeah, so, in my final year of university, to my parents' dismay came downstairs on New Year's Day and said, I'm going to set up a business. And both of my parents were like, um, are you sure? Like, you have a dissertation to write. I think you've got You're a bit much on your plate. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do it. And I'm just like one of those people where if you say you're going to do something, you do it. So yeah. a few weeks later, I had this business where I was selling eco-friendly products and working with two charities Painted dog conservation, of course, mm. <laughs> and one tree planted of as course. well. <laughs> Basically just had an online shop where there were eco-friendly swaps to products you'd use every day. Um, vegan, plastic-free, chemical-free. Oh, amazing. Um, and it was great. I met amazing people through it. We're doing events at schools and stuff and being able to talk to kids about toothbrushes. And they'd be so happy to learn about like, oh, I can have this bamboo <laughs> toothbrush and go and tell my mum and my friends. And just like having those interactions with people was so special. But it just got to a Mm. point this year when I'm working full-time, also working freelance alongside, where I was just like, I can't run my own business anymore. It was just too much. But It's a lot of work. It is. But also the world is a very different place now to when I started it up, and there's Mm. so many online eco-friendly shops, and it's just so much more accessible to people already, which is amazing. Right. Our final question is the big into the wild one, Roxy, that is if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone regarding the natural world, what would you pass on? I think just have a go-get-it attitude and know that mm. you as an individual really can make a difference. I think in the world that we live in, we've become obsessed with numbers and this online yeah. world that you can have zero social media presence. You could hate social media and not even have a phone and still be a conservationist because Mm. the people around you that you interact with, you can have such a big impact on influence them and their thoughts, their behaviors. Like think about Robbie, who was the man I met on bird Island who ignited my whole passion with wildlife. Like I was a six year old Mm. kid. Didn't really know a lot about the world. He was a man that lived on the Island that loved turtles and, changed my life we don't always have to be trying to target the masses we can have an impact whether that be at the school you work in or the office you have a desk in or wherever it might be I think all of us can make an impact in whatever way you choose and just get more people on board with conservation and loving the outdoors and just reconnecting with things that we should as humans be connected to anyway 
Oh, preach. Absolutely that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) word for word, Roxy was perfect. I completely agree. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, mate. Thank you so much for joining me. No worries. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's the first time after all these episodes that I've brought up veganism and I felt like that now was the right time. Like, now was the right time. <laughs> and it's done and you don't have to bring it up again. <laughs> don't have to do it. Didn't even say I was until you said you were, so you brought it up. <laughs> um, absolute pleasure, mate, and um, all the best for the rest of the year. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and the work Roxy is working on, you can do so on Instagram and Twitter at Roxy the Zoologist. And of course, any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent anyone we have worked with or are affiliated with. If you enjoyed today's show or you're a fan of Into the Wild, then you can say thanks by buying me a lovely coffee. The link to ko-fi.com forward slash Into the Wild podcast is in the write-up of this show. And finally, you can get in touch with me at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media at intothewildpod on Twitter and intothewildpodcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello, share some thoughts on an episode or let me know what you want to hear about next. Until next time, nature nerds, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.